Have you been searching for the best ticket deals around? Well, look no further. With TixFlix, the price you see is the price you pay. And TixFlix just happens to have over $6 billion in ticket inventory just waiting for you. They absolutely mean it when they say every ticket, every venue, everywhere. And you can save even more with promo code PULSE in all caps to save you 5% off your total purchase. Just go to TixFlix.com and click the search bar. Search events based on your geographic location. Pick the show you want, and bam, it's showtime. Sporting events, Broadway shows, concerts, and more with TixFlix.com. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the email newsletter so you can stay up to date on the latest news and savings with TixFlix. That's TixFlix.com. T-I-X-D-L-I-T-Z.com. Every ticket, every venue, everywhere. What's up, Nets fans? This is the Nets Pulse Podcast as part of the Pulse Podcast Network, checking in after a sombering Brooklyn Nets loss to the Oklahoma City Thunder late here on Wednesday evening. As always, it is your co-host, Brett, the beekeeper, Garofalo, sitting beside my esteemed co-host, Carl, the talent Jackson. Carl, uh, how you doing, man? Nobody said it was easy. <laughs> but I wasn't expecting it to be this hard. <sighs> the West Coast swing, we knew it was going to be tough. And frankly, I had this predicted as a loss. And ultimately, the Thunder just came out better or, or finished the game better. But boy. When it felt like we had that going in the first half, it's a real kick in the shorts, as they say. Grabbing game one would have been paramount, although I would love to take it back to the start like you just stated. I thought that was a very apt song to play. Oh, that... let's, let's, you know, it just helps me get my feelings out. You know, and I, I can't tell if it was they quote-unquote figured out the net zone and Kenny's zone just didn't work anymore or if they just started hitting shots. But that was one of the quickest, most abrupt, and disheartening turnarounds that I've seen in a second half in a long time. The Nets couldn't get anything going and too many possessions ended in Karis LeVert iso ball. Uh, and despite the one where he hit that bomb in your face three-pointer, it didn't end well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I started washing dishes at halftime and I came back and, you know, we had been up 10 and then we were down two and it only got worse from there. So, you know, what are you going to do? You, you move on to the next one. And, you know, the, the goal here, I think, over this remaining six games of this trip is to steal a few. Um, nobody expected that, that it would be good. And I think, you know, from a scoreboard watching perspective, our hated foes, the Orlando Magic, went down. Um, the Pistons also went down, although they lost to the Heat, so I'm not sure if that helps or, or you know, how exactly that plays out for us. But I kept checking in on that game <sighs> and couldn't tell who I was rooting for. Yeah, I really, I, I really, really, I don't know, I don't know, I don't really love either team. And I think that you know is a perfect segue into uh, what we're going to talk about today. So um, we're going to lead things off, I think, with a very quick. Um, three things that we like and don't like from the past few games. Um, you know, don't want to dwell too much on this uh, Thunder loss because again, you know, Net showed good fight and uh, we did not get a chance to talk after the absolute romp stomp win over the Pistons in Barclays. 
um, earlier. So I definitely want to touch on that. And then um, as it is March and it is March Madness time, we wanted to kind of give the people at home as you're filling out your office bracket and, uh, you know, looking at some of the games on the, on the tournament. Um, the, I think we're going to give each other homework uh, with a few guys to watch during the tournament that we think could be Nets draft targets. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and then a little bit about uh, college and the NBA in general. Um, but with that, Brett, do you want to start off with uh, with your three things that you like and don't like from the past few games? Uh, I would love to. The first thing, and this is a like, which I want to start off on a positive note after this evening. I would say that this two-game swing is the biggest notch in the Damari Carroll MVP candidacy belt that we've had all season. I think his resume is stellar. Uh, I believe his plus minus, uh, if you average out him not playing in this game and then playing in the Pistons game, is about 325 right now. And it just shows how important he is to this team, much like when LeBron went down for the Lakers and they ended up losing that whole string of games. So Damari Carroll, LeBron, both MVP candidates, not really sure who's going to win. It's going to be a tight race. But this game in particular, I think, proved that we didn't have that stabilization alongside Spencer Dinwiddie off the bench. And well, I think ultimately, like only one of those guys imploded his entire team by trying to trade every single person for somebody else. So I think that's that's a real point in Damari's column. Yeah, and only one of them wears the hell out of every hat that he puts on his head. Yeah, and only one of them is too fashionable to have his pants go below his calves, and that's Damari, the culottes. <laughs> Although LeBron did try to bring back or invent the suit with short combo which I don't think has taken off, but he sure tried. Yeah, LeBron takes some fashion risks, I, I, I would say. But you're right. Like LeBron, when LeBron takes fashion risks, it's like, hey, I think this is what I want people to be doing. When Damari takes fashion risks, it's like, yeah, I look like I'm going to sell you a live alligator. But you know what? Only I'm the only person that will be able to roll into the arena in this. So I kind of respect that. I think he's, I think he's on par with Russ Westbrook uh, in terms of a, as a dresser. I would agree with that. And, and speaking of people not doing what they should be doing, can we talk about the Lakers for a second? This was supposed to be our easy game on this stretch. The one gift that we got during this gauntlet of West Coast games where we barely get any rest going from tough team to tough team. The Lakers own their own 2019 first round pick. They aren't making the playoffs this year. They should be in full-on tank mode. LeBron sitting the second night of back-to-backs. Ingram and Ball are out for this season, yet if you look back at that Bulls game, LeBron leads a 20-point comeback, playing 33 minutes, 36 points. When we play them, they're going to have three days rest, so we're going to get a fully engaged, fully rested LeBron unless Magic, Luke Walton, and company completely change the course of what they want to do down the stretch. I'm not looking forward to this game now. I thought we were going to get a gift from from the scheduling gods down the stretch. Yeah, I mean, we can only hope that that he's taking a you know a secret meeting at the Paramount lot uh, the day before, or maybe he has to record uh, overdubs for whatever movie he's in where he's Guanji. Yeah, let's hope that this is the uh, first read through of the Space Jam Two script, and he has to miss the game. Yeah, he'll be up late night doing rewrites in the writers. <laughs> we can only hope. Um, another thing that I'm not sure if I either liked or didn't like it is, I don't know if, if anybody else heard this, but Mark Jones described Chesapeake Arena as both boisterous and classy at the beginning of the game. What the hell does that mean, Carl? 
I have no idea and I have a hard time thinking of anything in Oklahoma City as classy. Um, I, I just picture it, you know, as like Yosemite Sam, you know, screaming about oil and shooting pistols in the air. Um, the one thing I have noticed about Chesapeake Bay Arena, though, is they play music like super deep into possessions. Like they'll play like Mario sound effects, like with five seconds left on the shot clock. Um, I, I don't know. If, I don't know if you've ever caught that before, but like it just it just seems absurd to me that that they would just continue to, to play a soundtrack like so deep into a possession. I, you know, I feel like the Nets at Barclays had that issue when they first moved in and were trying to pump up the energy so much because there weren't a lot of true hardcore Nets fans going to the games and the, and the Brooklyn fans were kind of feeling the team out. So we were playing music a little bit too loud for my taste, a little bit too long into possessions. Um, <sighs> well, the other problem when the Nets first moved in was every single song that they played was only the part of a rap song where it mentioned the word Brooklyn. And there's a pretty wide catalog of, of, you know, people name dropping Brooklyn in, in rap music, but they really bottomed it out uh, as, as part of their in-game uh, performance. I've, I've noticed that with a lot of smaller market teams though, that they don't have that larger fan base to pull from. They don't sell out their arenas as much, or they don't tend to get as crazy. And they try to overcompensate for playing music deep into the shot clock or overplaying music. And maybe I'm overgeneralizing by saying that, but I tend to notice it more at the small market arenas than the historical teams like the Celtics or the Lakers that have those rabid fan bases have 20, 30 years of clout built up and they don't necessarily need to pump that energy in or feel like they do. Yeah, I mean, you know, maybe if they wanted a more energetic, engaged uh, fan base that that was a little bit larger and, and brought the noise on a little bit more of a consistent basis, they they probably could have stayed in their better media market, better city, and, and you know, overall better location of Seattle, um, rather than letting you know Aubrey McClendon, who was one of the architects of the two thousand eight housing crisis, uh, move them to Oklahoma City before he uh, you know killed himself in his uh, car to evade uh, testifying before uh, Congress about it. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, we can continue to your third thing if you'd like. I, I would love to move on from that. <laughs> I haven't researched this topic at all. Um, I, so my, my third thing, and this, this is more of a question for you, and I believe I posed this via text the other night. It might be a little bit too ridiculous to, uh, to entertain, but I think the Pistons knew that the Nets had a really tough schedule coming up. I think that at halftime of that game, whether they outright said it or not, the message was play physical in the second half and win or lose, at least we send a message, knowing that if they beat the Nets up a little bit, if the Nets weren't 100% going on to this road trip, there's a good chance we could win only one or even no games on this if we end up slipping up or have a couple players hurt. Is there a chance that that crossed the minds of the Pistons coaching staff or players when they were talking at halftime of that game? So, you know, I don't know. Um, The Pistons are a goon squad kind of in general. So I I feel like that is sort of their style of play. And they got absolutely run out of the gym by the Nets um, earlier this week. So, you know, I I could kind of see that being the natural reaction. I definitely think that, um, and and this tees it, off really nicely with with my first thing that I, that I loved um, that you know Rodion's Karuk's got so far under Blake Griffin's skin it was outrageous and the back and forth between the two of them was was fantastic um, Blake was just absolutely being a petulant child and uh, you know going after Rody and and um, 
just being, you know, a complete, a complete punk about it. Um, and so that was really fun. And I think, you know, the other thing with, um, with Rhodey that I noticed, and this is, this, this is kind of my second thing. So, so my second thing in general is just the defense that the Nets have played over the past few games. Um, Kirk Goldsberg periodically releases his um, efficiency quadrants um, on Instagram. And this was the first time, I think, the one that he released today um, where I've seen the Nets in the positive defensive efficiency, negative offensive efficiency quadrant for the first time this year. Um, and I think that the Nets have really turned the, the defense on um, for the past few games. And in particular, I think you see a little bit in the first half of tonight's game against the Thunder, um, but especially in the game against the Pistons, when they're able to generate turnovers, it pays off in an enormous way. And, and I think Rodion's Karuks was is absolutely um, the lead among that. Where Because sometimes I feel like Kenny Atkinson's defense is essentially just length. It's like, we'll drop back in his own. Uh, because we can kind of jump passing lanes and we got long guys and, you know, we can't really guard you on ball, but we're going to be long so we can kind of recover quickly. And, and, you know, that's kind of built into the, to the advantage they try to gain. Well, when that pays off in terms of getting steals and, um, you know, getting out in transition, going the other way, it, it not only, you know, improves their defensive efficiency, but it also generates instant offense on the other side. When it pays off, you get a first quarter like you got tonight with the Oklahoma City Thunder, where it seemed like once every two possessions, somebody on the nets, whether it was D'Angelo Russell, who's not known for his defense, Rodion's, was getting the steal, dribbling up court, and we had some sort of advantage on a fast break. Hubie and Mark noted it saying not only the steals, but the Nets were able to switch and rotate quick enough to have a double team on almost any Thunder player that got within 10 feet of the hoop. That is a very frenetic and hectic style of defense to play. Now the Nets can do it. And again, as the broadcasters noted during the game, the Nets run a deep rotation of about 11 guys that are averaging over 20 minutes a game. You can potentially keep that up for a whole game when everybody is quote-unquote rested, but it really wore down versus the Thunder in that second half after frenetically switching everything, having it pay off, and having the Nets look head and shoulders above the Thunder in the first half, specifically in the first quarter. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. Um, you know, it, it, it really... I feel like is one of the things that I see happening right now that, that makes me really excited for the future because I think if you do bring in a guy you know, obviously the sort of fever dream would be Kawhi, but, you know, even if it's Jimmy Butler, who, you know, who I'm fairly lukewarm about overall, but like, is it, is it, well, is a decent on ball defender? I don't actually know that he is a decent on ball defender. I've, I've, you know, read and sort of seen some evidence to the contrary. So maybe that's a bad example, but if you bring somebody in who, who can kind of be a lockdown guy up front and kind of cut the head off the snake a little bit, you know, the, the Nets have the ability, I think, to help and recover and, and use their length to be super disruptive in other areas that I think that this defense, you know, can get a lot better really quickly. And I think things that, that you see like the game against Detroit are really good examples of it. Um, and I think, you know, the other thing I'll just say about it is, you know, you and I joked a little bit last time about, you know, Rody not hitting the wall and giving credit to Nets Twitter. I mean, this dude has just... Kool-Aid man through the rookie wall right now at this point. I mean, he's playing fantastic basketball. He's shooting threes. He's, he's got active hands. He's, you know, he, he's 
he's going to be a player going forward, and I am here for it. I can't overstate how much I enjoy watching his intelligence when he plays. He's playing the little two-man game, still getting those cuts, and there's film out there on him now, so he's not surprising teams with these cuts anymore. We've played the Thunder before with him playing. He was getting dunks. He was getting wide-open layups, and that was all from pivoting, cutting, faking one direction, going another, always being active, always being on the move. And when you have young players that are that intelligent and can keep moving around the court like that, it really sets the tone for the rest of the team, so it's not just... Joe Harris sprinting around screens and the defense keen in on him and hoping that Alan Crabb or somebody else doesn't get hot. Yeah, for sure. And he's also able to put it on the floor and he's able to make things happen that way too. So, so that's very exciting. Um, so then my last thing, um, well, so, so my last thing and, uh, is kind of Karis LeVert and, and figuring out kind of how you know, he, he's, he's bouncing back. I mean, I think the positives with him is he's able to get to the spots that he wants to, his, his drives are looking more effective, more kind of slithery, um, you know, like they were earlier in the season. He's just sort of short on just about every shot, um, which is, I think, you know, a little bit frustrating, but, but, you know, mildly encouraging at the same time, although it doesn't really help you in time for the playoff race. One thing I have noticed with him and, and I saw, um, in the discord chat that we were in, um, earlier tonight, I, I think the username was W4 same um, that kind of called out like Karis plays at his best when he's not overthinking things. And I think that that's really what he needs to avoid at, at this point, because I think he has a tendency to want to break everybody down off the dribble. And, you know, while that, while he can do that sometimes, um, you know, I think the biggest thing is just making sure that the ball is just not sticking with him on offense, because I feel like, especially with the bench unit out there, um, you know, th- they need to get shots. They need to get open shots. And, and when they've got, you know, whether it's Crab or Damari Carroll or Dinwiddie or whomever, you know, on the floor, like there are shooters there that need to shoot. Um, and so, you know, if he's taking up 15 seconds of the shot clock, trying to get to the basket, even if he's, even if he's making his kind of off balance twos, like it's still not the most efficient shot that he can get. He needs to, to focus a little bit more on being a creator and, and just keeping the offense working within its own flow. Shout out to the 46 Nets fans in that Nets Twitter Discord chat. There are 46 of us, Carl. 46. That's that's insane. That number seems far too high. I, I totally agree on Karras, though. And he, what made him so special at the beginning of the season was his ability to be a two-way player. His shot was working. He could get to the rim. He was the guy that we went to in the clutch. But on the other side of the ball, he was our quickest perimeter defender. And he seemed like he could get around any screen, any switch, and stay in front of his man. He always played hard on both sides. It was a joy to watch. And I noticed in the Thunder game tonight that he was not necessarily dying on screens, but he was not keeping up with his man. It was really setting our defense back. And it seems like even though he is able to get to the rim, what he's doing right now is taking a ton of dribbles to break his man down. It really stagnates the offense. And that type of play is more effective as a dump off. If the shot clock is winding down or as the game goes down the stretch, defenses tighten up and the flow of the normal Nets offense isn't necessarily effective because everybody's trying five, 10, 15% harder. And that doesn't really play for the rest of the game. So I'm not really sure what to, to make of Karras at this point, but I think where he really needs to make strides is fitting in with the flow of the 
offense, like you said, acting without thinking and finding a way to keep the ball moving until the skill set that he seems to have gotten back a bit, which is the one-on-one play, is valuable in those situations that I just laid out. Yeah, and I think it's important, especially because you know one of the Nets' strengths and, and possibly their biggest strength right now is their bench, and so it's really crucial to them to be outscoring teams during that time that the bench is on the floor, and particularly when he's sharing the floor with Spencer Dinwiddie, who I think is is kind of the clear guy who's who's probably too good for the bench unit, and he closes the game with the starters, and you know has the possibility to to really turn into instant offense. Like I feel like you know when Karras is, it's just sort of bogarting the basketball and just kind of monopolizing things. And so, you know, like we said, I think it just, it just needs to keep moving. I think, you know, my last thing, and this is, I guess, a fourth that I'm sort of cheating with, but um, not trying to call anybody out, not trying to Uh be too doom and gloomy. I don't have the numbers for one of these guys, but I just feel like maybe haven't seen much of Joe Harris in the past few games. And I know that D'Angelo over the last seven games is shooting 27% from three. So um, definitely some cooling off uh, for, for those two guys. And I think that's, you know, another, uh, you know, luckily that's have been able to play through it for, for a lot of those games, but um, just another thing to keep an eye on. Yes, it's cooling off if you look at the pure percentages, but I think the consensus among Nets fans seems to be that, and you pointed this out on Twitter the other day, that defenses are keen in on Joe Harris and D'Angelo Russell as our two most important offensive players, or at least that's what it seems like the opposing teams think. And you could notice it tonight in the OKC game. Until the fourth quarter when it was garbage time, Joe Harris didn't get any clean looks. And the threes that D'Angelo Russell was taking, and even though he hit a few because he can hit insane shots and he's got that high arc and he can take shots off the dribble. They were really tough, step back, crossover dribble, um, hand in your face, three pointers or drives where he had the Thunder's best defender or at least one of their top two, top three defenders on the floor on him. And it's clear that defenses are keen in. I think it's one of those things where D'Lo now needs to adjust to the rest of the league, adjusting to him and recognizing him as the Nets' best player as opposed to the beginning of the season where he wasn't the guy that had the ball in crunch time, that was Karras, or he was benched down the stretch and into overtime games, like that one against the Hornets in favor of Spencer Dinwiddie because Spencer was a bit more of a stabilizing force for the offense and wasn't as big of a threat to turn the ball over. So I think that's just an adjustment period for D'Angelo and Joe. I think it is going to be easier for D'Angelo to adjust because he has the ball in his hands and Joe's more at the mercy of who passes it to him. But that's my take on what's going on and maybe that's putting it too much on what the opposing teams are doing but it is now Kenny D'Angelo and Joe's responsibility to adjust to that and find ways to get more efficient shots versus continuing to take the tough shots that that defenses are forcing them into yeah I totally agree with all that and and I think maybe a better way to phrase it isn't uh, you know I don't think that those guys are playing badly or not stepping up or anything like that I just think that as a team you know the Nets offense needs to figure out ways to get them better shots. Yes. Um, and I think that that's, that's just been something that I feel like has been missing the past few games. Um, a little bit of a struggle. I mean, even because even, even in the Pistons game where, you know, everything was clicking on all cylinders, you know, it wasn't happening now, granted, like, you know, D'Angelo, you know, didn't play much in the fourth quarter and the Nets, you know, didn't, didn't need his services as much as they did in, in previous games, but just, just something to watch, just something to think about. 
So, all right. So, you know, being that it is March, Brett, I think you and I, um, as we're looking forward to the Nets offseason, obviously, you know, still fully locked and loaded on the playoff race here and, and getting as many as getting as much as we can from um, this road trip. But, um, you know, being that it is March and being that this road trip is occurring, you know, to allow the A-10 tournament to happen in Barclays Center, um, you know, you and I just kind of wanted to give each other a few guys to take a look at during uh, the NCAA tournament um, as potential Nets draft picks. So why don't we, what do you, what do you want to do? You want to just go back and forth? I think we, we had talked about looking at somebody that would fall in kind of the, the late lottery range, um, whether that be because the Nets uh, don't have the best uh, road trip here, or don't have the best time to close out the season and, and you know, end up in the late lottery, or, um, you know, if Sean Marks were to package the two picks together or uh, package the um, Knicks uh, second rounder to move up. And then we wanted to look at somebody within the Nets pick range, which we think is going to be around 16 to 18, assuming that they do make the playoffs. Um, and then somebody in the Nuggets Nuggets or Knicks pitch, pick range, which is basically end of the first round, uh, beginning of the second. So we're looking for three guys. Um, do you want to go first? I, I would love to go first. And I'm going to start by walking you through my methodology for the players that I chose. But what I'd like to start off by saying is I really hope that we end up with either the 16th or the 18th pick because I was doing some research on the projected value that teams historically have gotten out of each draft position. And one of the sites ended up listing the best player and the worst player to come out of the 17th pick. The best player was Marcin Gortat, the Polish hammer. Great player. Would love to have him on the team. The worst player, Andrea Bargnani. Oh, shuddering! There was there was a I was going back and forth with somebody on Twitter about who who is the like whether or not uh, Rodion's Karuks is the Nets best the Brooklyn Nets best power forward, um, just uh, of anybody that's played power forward oh, in wow. Brooklyn. And you know we were like, well, it, it might be. I mean, I think Thad Young it was probably better um, than Rodion is this season. Um, you know, I think that you know you could look at. I suggested Paul Pierce as a as a small ball four. Um, but, but I thought about throwing Andrea Barnani out there. It's like, well, clearly it wasn't him. Oh man. Yeah, so that one, I think there's bad juju associated with that 17th pick. So Nets fans just pray that we end up with either the 16th or 18th pick. There were no bad names in there. And so you alluded to this earlier when you were talking about the Nets defense and defensive philosophy and Hubie and Mark were talking through it on the OKC broadcast tonight. You were saying that regardless if we have folks that can stay in front of the offensive players on ball, we have very, very long players that have active hands and intelligence and when it's really clicking, they can get a lot of steals and can catch up to players if they get by them and get deflections, blocks, you name it. And Hubie and Mark went through saying, hey, you know, the Nets have a lot of guys in that 6'6 to 6'8 range that they can throw at you. So it's clear that in the Nets past draft trends or uh, what they focused on during the draft, they wanted to prioritize length, switchability, guys like Karras who guard three positions when he's healthy. Rody's going to be able to guard three. Ideally, when he bulks up, Jared, Jared Allen can guard two right now. Those are the type of players they've keyed in on. And I went through a couple other Nets draft trends in my head to figure out, okay, 
as I'm looking in this range, I don't want to just look at players that are projected to go in this range, which was pretty tough because I think you and I both noted some guys were listed to go at five on somebody's big board and 32 on another big board. And it's, and it's wild and it seems to change yeah, every week. This draft is all over the place, but um, I'm, I'm right there with you in terms of methodology. The only the only stats that I had, uh, you know, pulled down were like uh, height, wingspan, and three point percentage. Oh we're gonna <laughs> give, was, we're gonna give, I'm glad we prepared more than three because we're ending up giving each other the same players. I know it. So uh, other things that I took into account though are players with a history of injury or surgery where teams might shy away or not necessarily trust it. That's how we got a steal with Karras. I would say players with different or mercurial personalities or interests such as a a Jared Allen, who's very reserved, brings books everywhere, built his own computer. Folks were questioning whether or not he cared about basketball. And that's why a guy with that much talent ended up dropping to the Nets in the 20s, which seems ridiculous now. And the Spurs have been saying for years that they value players who care about things other than basketball, but not every franchise thinks that way or every franchise would be the Spurs. And then the last trend is international knowledge and connections, which doesn't necessarily help with the NCAA, but there are a slew of international players that are going to be playing for some of these teams in the tournament that fit the quote-unquote Nets switchability and length description that I think you and I both focused on. Um, Dude, we're, de- we're definitely going to give each other the same players. This is great. <laughs> um, one, one, one note that we should say, though. So a so, um, couple constraints that we did put out here. You know, we're, we're looking at college players only for this exercise right now. Um, and you know, we may talk about some players that aren't going to be in the tournament, but we are going to try to pick players that are going to be in the tournament. Um, n- not to say that the Nets have to choose that, but just, you know, to make it a little bit more interesting to for, for watching purposes. Absolutely. Yeah. The purpose of this is to watch the tournament from a Nets fan's perspective. And even though March Madness is super exciting, it gives you that extra behind what you're watching. Oh, this guy could be on the Nets. Let me look at what he's supposed to be good at and see if I think he actually would be a good fit or if the guys on ESPN are blowing smoke and trying to sound like they know what they're talking about with this prospect that they clearly didn't watch. Uh, And I tried to also focus on players from relatively higher-seeded teams in the hope that we would get a larger sample size than one game, but we all know how that goes in March Madness, so who knows? Yeah, I may see uh, the darling of the upset world. The UMBC Terriers are up here in Burlington to play UVM on Saturday. I was thinking about getting tickets, although they're $95 on StubHub right now. What? I don't don't know know if I'm going to pull that trigger, but we'll see. That's more than a Nets game. The market market will work itself out. We'll see. Okay. Uh, Would you like me to start? Yes, please do. Okay. Uh, I feel like starting is an advantage here because I'm going to choose a player that you probably have on your list. Uh, the the first player that I've chosen is PJ Washington, a six eight forward from Kentucky. Carl, do you have him on your list? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should just both watch all of these players. I think so. I think so. So you so you had him as? Uh, can you specify which which categorization was he? A, a, like a late lotto guy, a Nets pick guy, or a Nugs Knicks? So I I think if we get him, we're going to end up having to take him in the late lotto, even though I saw him around the Nugs or Knicks range on some drafts. I mean, the guy plays for one of the best teams, if not a top four team in the country. He's got a 7-3 wingspan. He's the best big man on that team, and he's already 230 pounds. So he's a big guy. Uh, he also shoots over 40% from three on 2.3 attempts. 
averaging 15 and seven and over a block per game. So all of that to me, wingspan, height, weight, shooting from three at a decent volume for college screams exactly what the Nets are looking for. I couldn't find too much about his defense. So if I'm going to be watching PJ Washington, the things that I'm going to be looking for are defensive instincts. You see jumping and trying to swat everything. How are his boxing out instincts, which is something we talked about at length on the last podcast. Is he actually keeping players away from the hoop and keeping the other team from getting the ball? Or is he just going after rebounds with reckless abandon without putting a body on somebody? When is he choosing to go out and guard smaller players? When is he staying back? That's what I'm really going to be watching for because the offensive numbers speak for themselves. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And and looking at the um, across kind of the mocks, I mean, his high is 15. Um, his low is actually 42, which seems insane. It's Although I'm wondering if we if we had 42 is from NBA Draft Net. Um, so I don't know if that was a, an a earlier one or whatever, but. But I think a lot of, I, I have seen him going to the Nets um, with the Nets pick in multiple mocks. So I think I think he's a realistic target for that Nets pick range. Um, but I will I will watch him and I will report. We we're gonna have to do a pod, um, you know, early April where we report back on these guys. And as we know, Kentucky big men have a history of overperforming their college numbers once they come to the NBA. They do, although don't tell that to Rex Chapman. Um, Shots fired. Jamal Mashburn. Uh, mm, re- re- recent, <laughs> recent Kentucky pick. <laughs> recent Calipari era. <laughs> All right. Um, so my guy. So I'm going to give you two because I'm expecting you to to call me out on one of these. So so the so the guy that I kind of initially. Um, saw going in the Nets range that I thought uh, I really loved, although I've seen him a little bit higher than that. And so my late lotto guy is DeAndre Hunter mm-hmm. from Virginia. Um, 6'8", 7'2", uh, wingspan. Um, he's a redshirt sophomore, so he's 22, um, but he's got a 58% uh, effective field goal percentage. He's shooting 45% from three, uh, 24.6 usage. And I think he's somebody that, you know, the reason that, that there's sort of variation on, on where he lands is like he's just a tailor-made 3 and D guy. So, you know, I don't think there's a ton of superstar potential with him. Um, but I think in the net system, uh, a 3 and D guy who who can, you know, potentially be a plus defender um, would be extraordinarily valuable. Um, so if he is available, I would hope that the Nets would jump all over him. Uh, I don't know if he has a relationship with Joe Harris, uh, being that they're both Virginia Cavaliers, but um, would be would be worth looking into. Can do we do we count that guy, Brett, or do we do we feel like he's he's too early? I really like wanted to put DeAndre Hunter on my list, but I couldn't see him lower than 16 on any of the lists out there. He plays for a high-profile college. Virginia's gotten a lot of press recently with how well Malcolm Brogdon's played for the Bucks, how well Joe Harris has played winning the three-point competition. I just don't see with all of that good juju revolving around. Virginia, them being known for their defense and him anchoring that, him dropping to the Nets. Now, the only thing that plays in our favor is his age. Maybe folks say, well, you know, he is 22. Let's look to add somebody with a little bit more upside because teams in that range are more thinking about, can I get a superstar versus can I get a player that can contribute right now, which he is on at least defense. But I still think he's going to go before that. All right, so then if we're if we're not going to count DeAndre Hunter, although we can both keep an eye on him, then I'm going to go with Rui Hachimura from Gonzaga. Uh, 
Is he on your list? He's definitely on my list. <laughs> yep. Six eight seven two wingspan. Uh, shooting 46.9% from three, although it doesn't look like he takes many attempts per game. Um, he is their leading scorer and everything that I've heard. Uh, I, I haven't honestly, to you know, true confession, really watched a ton of college basketball this year, aside from a few UConn games, which <laughs> don't have many pro prospects um, <laughs> involved in them. Um, he is their leading scorer, and Gonzaga is a really fun team to watch. So I had a couple guys from there just – really for my own interest sake. I, I did too. I, I love watching Gonzaga and I cannot wait until they finally win a championship if and when that ever happens. So I wrote next to Roy Hachimura dot, dot, dot. Is this nuts question mark? And the reason for that is he's been incredibly volatile on draft boards. I think he was projected outside of the lottery as recent as February. And now I've seen him as high as eight, nine, 10 on some boards. Now I do think he could slip again because of his age. He's 23 years old. So that really plays against him in terms of a high upside player. I think he's somebody that can come in and contribute right away. Now, the one comparison that I did really like and that really intrigued me is Pascal Siakam, where started playing basketball a little bit later later in life, um, doing you know, coming from a culture where there wasn't uh, – um, AC uh, wasn't high school basketball and there uh, wasn't a system to go into and he wasn't picked up by uh, potential agents or whatever it was, but then also somebody that has natural instincts and picked up defense right away, but is incredibly raw offensively, even though he's averaging 20 and six. So if he can come into the league and figure out how to shoot, he could be an impact player on both ends. And one of those fringe AVP MVP candidates like a Pascal Siakam, I really like this guy. And I think he might drop to the that's range because he's 23 but still that's that's a tough one all right so your assignment when you watch him is to determine whether or not he will become a better complete all-around player than ronda hellish jefferson that's what we need carl we had the defense with that length we just don't have the offense right now the the comp the comp makes sense right like if he's a guy that that's good on defense athletic a little bit raw on offense you know but can can develop a shot like you know ronnie does a lot of good things you know i mean this particular second half of this year notwithstanding where he's just done a lot of dumb things and i think he's forced the issue a little too much i mean i think if you look at him last year and kind of where his you know, trajectory was, it's always been, if he, if, if his jumper can move outside, you know, he's going to be a really effective player and it just hasn't. Um, but that would make him a, a much more complete player. So I think that that's what I would be interested in, in learning about him. I'm on it. I would, I would love to watch him and I want to watch Gonzaga. So there's, there's also a reason that I threw him on here too, because that's a team that I plan to watch a lot of and hope that they go deep in the tournament. It's just because you looked like Adam Morrison when we were in college. I, I still have a mustache like that, which is why I <laughs> will never grow a mustache or never participate in Movember again. <laughs> oh, um, I've got another one for you if you, if you, if you don't mind. Bring it. All right. Uh, the next person on my list is Grant Williams. Did you have him on your list too? Not on my list, but I thought about it. Ooh, okay, cool. Good. All right. So there is there is some differences here. We're not just agreeing on everything. Uh, well, the number one reason outside of his length and height that I liked him is he may may be somebody that could be a playmaker at his size. He's averaging just over three assists per game in college minutes, which is 
pretty damn good for a big man. That goes along with over a block and over a steal per game. So playmaking combined with defense is huge for me. The shooting is the only thing that I would watch for there. He's only putting up 1.23s a game and he's not hitting them at a high clip. So I would really want to see, does he have shooting? Does he have a high basketball IQ? I'm assuming that he does because of those assists that he's getting, but it's tough to tell if those are really a fluke or not because a college basketball season is such a small sample side. And they're a projected number two seed right now, so we should get a handful of games to watch. And he's been another really volatile player. I've seen him as high as nine, and that was a few months ago, and now he's as low as 31 on some boards. All right, I'll check him out. We're, we're, he's from Tennessee? Six seven forward from Tennessee. All right. Go Vols. And you think he's a Nets pick range guy, or he's a Nuggets-Knicks range guy? When I first researched him and only had a few sites up, I thought he would have been a Nets pick range guy, and I thought he was a stretch. But then as I saw him dropping on some of the boards, I think he's going to be more of a Nuggets pick range guy. Yeah, I guess in our Agrocrag ratings, we have him at 26. Um, His high is 18, which is from the Basketball Insiders mock draft. And his low is 41, yeah, which is probably from Sam Vecini's top 100. No, Sam Vecini has him at 31. His 41 is from... Uh, oh, I'm reading the wrong column, the wrong row here. I think you're reading the right. From uh, Sports Illustrated. 41 is from Sports Illustrated. So... Yeah, so I, I think he's definitely somebody that could be available. Um, one guy that is an NIT special for me, just because I have him right below on this list, is Jalen McDaniels from San Diego State. Um, unless they win their conference tournament, which I don't believe they're going to, and they may already be out of, um, he, I don't believe he will play in the uh, NCAA tournament. He may be an NIT special. Um, but he's somebody that I looked at that that I just thought was really interesting. He is 6'10", 7'1", length. Um, shoots 36% from three, 53% effective field goal percentage on 29% usage. Um, he was, he's 20 for 56 on the, or was 20 for 56 on the year from three when I took this stat, which was probably February, like early February. Um, so I think he's, a, he's an interesting guy uh, as well. Um, but the guy that I will give you for my sort of nuggets pick range is, is or Nets pick range rather is Brandon Clark nice. from Gonzaga. Was he on was he on your board? Uh, no, I removed him because in some of the most recent mocks I saw him going pretty high up there and I thought it would be a stretch. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Um he he's bumped pretty high up um on a, on a couple things. He's a guy who transferred from San Jose State. Um so again, he's a little bit older. Um he is I think 22. Um, I couldn't get a clear wingspan on him, but I believe it's six, eight. Um, well, I had six, eight, so he's six, eight height and it says his wingspan is, is longer than that, but nobody could, could really, um, give a clear idea. Um, my understanding on him is that he's more of an inside player. He's a little bit more of like a bulldog, um, type power forward, although he's extended his range a little bit. He doesn't really shoot from three a lot. He's only got 0.4 attempts per game and he's shooting, 28% from there um, on the season, um, but could be somebody that I think defensively um, could be pretty stout anchoring the team, anchoring, you know, things inside. And he can, he's got some switchability on defense as well. So I think definitely taking a look at him and, and seeing if, you know, 
A, would he be enough of a plus defender that it would make sense? And B, do you think that his offensive game would translate even though we've seen Kenny Atkinson show a pretty clear uh, propensity for yeah, will he at force. least have some role gravity Even or the propensity to offensive rebound to make him valuable out there until he develops a three point shot? And how bad does that three point that three pointer look? Is it ben Simmons quality yeah. or is it something that looks moldable? Well, Ben Simmons quality is error cannot divide by zero. But um, Kenny Kenny will play. We've seen that Kenny will play fours who can shoot the three even if they're Quincy AC. Yeah. So and let the record show I did have Jalen McDaniels listed with an asterisk next to it at the end of my list as he is on the Indiana Hoosiers who are a bubble team. But he also looked like a very intriguing player to me and I was disappointed that we're most likely not going to be able to watch him in the tournament. Yeah. Wait, Jalen McDaniels I thought was on San Diego. Oh is he maybe they were playing Indiana then. Must have screwed that up. Uh, There's also several Jalen's there's a Jalen Hands and a Jalen Horde. Anyway, who do I have who next? Uh, next? Next on my list, I have, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Nazrion Reed. Is that correct? Do you have any idea if that's the right way to say it? Uh, I don't, but I just call him Nazreed because um, he was he was one when I was assembling all the data from the different mock drafts that had like 17 different spellings out there, and that was infuriating me earlier. But um I'm sure Let's go with Naz. Nas. All he needs is one mic. Uh, 6'10". <laughs> forward from LSU. This dude is 240 pounds at 6'10". He's the most filled out of anyone that I uh, found that, was, that seemed like a net switchable player. Right now, he's averaging... 14 and 10 with just under two blocks a game. That being said, he does not shoot or make three pointers. That's pretty rough. So is that something that the Nets think he can develop? Would they take him if he doesn't do that? I don't know, but he does seem like a very switchable, hard-nosed, smart defender that has an NBA-ready body already. And LSU looks like they're going to be a six seed, so that could give us a game or two, maybe three if they make a run. Awesome. So my last guy for you is from the University of Washington. Uh, it is Matisse Tybul. Um, he is somebody who I've seen kind of Ooh. all over the map on different mocks. It seems like he is fallen a little bit. Um, I think his high is 30. His low is like 54. Um, and, you know, read a little bit about kind of like why, why that was happening. He's a six, five wing with it, with a freakish seven foot wingspan. So, um, I think fits, you know, a little bit shorter than, than most of the guys in the nets, but I think, you know, lengthwise would fit in. Um, he is shooting 33% from three, but, uh, is, is, Somebody he shot forty percent as a sophomore, and he and he's a really high uh, free throw shooting, like eighty five or ninety percent from the line. And I have read recently that uh, what guys shoot from the free throw line is actually a better indicator of how they'll shoot the three pointer in in the NBA than than how they shoot threes in college, um, which I thought mm-hmm. was really interesting, and we could unpack on a later podcast. Um, the reason that he has dropped has been, um, I think to your point earlier uh, on the Spurs, has been people questioning um, you know, his, his interests outside of basketball and, and, and his motor and his drive. Um, per coaches, he was called – the adjectives that I have written down are reclusive, don't think he has the intangibles of a worker, and worst of all, likes poetry. 
Um, so I thought oh, that, God, you know, Carl, I don't want to watch this perhaps guy. He would, perhaps he would like to come roam the ample hills of Brooklyn. Uh, shouts to Walt Whitman. Shouts to Miss Smith and Amlet, junior year of high school. Um, As a man, I can't remember the last time I picked up a book, so I don't know if I can side with this guy. Well, do we count magazines? Magazines that are three years old that we keep next to the toilet. <laughs> oh, God. That, that is so, so ridiculous. The same thing was said about Jared Allen. The same thing was said about Miles Turner. The same thing was said about DeAndre Jordan. I, 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 the, the list goes on and on with, but now I guess I think the same thing was said about Wes Johnson that he may not care about basketball, but I don't think they made fun of his poetry reading. So we'll uh, we'll leave him off the list there. But yes, I would love to watch this guy now, knowing that he's getting torn down for having interests outside of basketball and being quiet. Yeah, I mean, just take a look, just see see if it's see if it's um you know the kind of thing that like you know you you look at his game and you're like okay yeah this guy's you know apathetic. I mean like you know if it's Marcus Williams or something and you're like oh this guy's just fucking high all the time then you know maybe we maybe we're not interested but if it's if maybe it's we move on that you know just has a different type of personality then uh, you know maybe we can make it work well if he ends up on the spurs we'll know that the nets made the wrong decision exactly well, a couple of the things I did want to call out to, uh, talking to the point of the Nets being willing to take chances on players with the history of injury, given their trust in their medical staff and their analytics. I do think that there's a chance that players like Jonte Porter, Bull Bull, hell, even Kevin Porter could drop down to the Nets picks due to uh, some down seasons and unfortunate injury histories. And because of that, and because of the age of some of the players that we were pointing out, like a, a Roy Machimura, this could be a really fun draft for the Nets because I, I think that one of these guys that has the ability to be special is going going to drop to the nets and given what they've done with the recent draft picks, I trust them to make the right decision on whichever one of those guys drops down. I think that it's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, and I think the, the nets are also in a cool position where they have a really clear identity and um, you know, they, they can, they can take some of these higher floor, lower ceiling guys and plug them into a role where, you know, they, they can be really effective at the NBA level without having to, you know, cash that ticket in for a, for a superstar. And of course, the only the only thing about this exercise that's completely futile is that we know that you know come draft day, the Nets aren't going to be picking any of these guys. They're going to be picking some guy that Trajan Langdon found in a broom closet in the Irkutsk, um, you know, while he was backpacking through the whatever you know Soviet bloc republics, uh, or you know earlier this this off season. A seven foot five enemy of the state that's been kept in the basement of a vodka distillery somewhere near, but not within this vicinity of Siberia. He's been fed just goat's milk for 23 years. He's lean and mean Carl, and he's ready to beat people up for the nets. And he's played by Dolph Lundgren in the made for TV movie, which doesn't make any sense because Dolph Lundgren's like 76. Although given the amount of Botox, he's, he doesn't look a day over 42, but what are you going to do? Oh, all those guys. Jean-Claude had the same thing. Ugh. So anyway, it sounds uh, like uh, your assi- our, our joint assignments are uh, PJ Washington. Uh, I'm going to force you to ru- to watch uh, Naz One Mike Reed on LSU and Grant Williams, Grant Grantonio Williams on Tennessee. And then I will be watching Rui or Roy Hachimura. Uh, and uh, who else did you say? Brandon Clark. Brandon Clark, of course. But of course. So yeah, you can you can you can just 
park it on some Gonzaga games. <laughs> nice. I'm happy about that. I wanted to watch Gonzaga. This is great. But anyway, I think that on that note, we're, we're probably good to wrap. Uh, what do you say? Yeah, I think it's time. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Uh, you know, hit us up on Twitter at Nets underscore Pulse. Hit us up on Gmail, NetsPulse at gmail.com. Um, holler at us in the Discord chat. We got Nets Pulse BG. That's for Brett. Nets Pulse CJ. That's for me, Carl. And uh, hey, one game at a time. We move through this road trip. We got West Coast Swing, six more games, and uh, let's steal a couple of them. What do you say? Let's do it, baby. All right.